This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. We know that language is an important communication tool, but it is so much more than that. It is part of our identity, culture, how we express ourselves, and so much more. But what exactly is the relationship between language and our identity? I'm Dashran Johan, and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Associate Professor Dr. Surinder Palkor. She's the Dean at the Faculty of Languages and Linguistics at University of Malaya. Welcome to the show, Dr. Surin. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me on board the show, Dashran. Can you provide a brief um, overview of how language and identity are interconnected? At the very basic level, language and identity are very, very much interconnected. And it's a very complex connection. Hmm. Uh, But at the very basic level, I'd say it expresses someone's sense of self and belonging. And that self and belonging can come through cultural identity. It can come through national identity, ethnic identity. It can even come through social identity, So, as well as individual identity. So all of these things are interconnected in many different ways. Some of them overlap. Some of them are distinct from each other. But certainly, language and identity are important here because language shapes identity, but at the same time, your identity also shapes the language that you use and you move ahead with. Right. So let's dive into that because you brought up a lot of things, right? Like ethnic, national identity. Mm -hmm. And we want to go through them um, bit by bit as throughout the conversation. But how important is language when it comes to shaping one's identity? Okay. When it comes to shaping one's identity, let's just take cultural identity for example, or national, let's take national identity, right. all right? Um, for uh, Let me give you an example. Let's take the French. Um, mm. You know, the French take great pride in their language. It's the la langue de Molière, they call it, you know, the, <laughs> you know, the, the, the language of Molière, uh, the French playwright. So historically, the preservation of the French language and protecting it from other languages, other linguistic influences, a sense of borrowings and things like that. That's that great sense of, you know, keeping it within its French bounds. So um, they also have a lot of, uh, you know, um, academies across the world that work to preserve the language, the purity and integrity of a French language, because it is so connected to the French national identity. And But if you look at something like, you know, a country like Spain, for instance, Spain, right has got many different languages. They've got Castilian, Catalan, Galician, Basque. Each of these are tied to different regions and different cultural identities. So the national identity becomes a little bit more complex. So what happens in Spain is they do have the Castilian, which is the more official language, but then they also have, say, for example, Catalan, which is a a symbol of nationalism in the Catalan region. And only Mm -hmm. recently has Catalan been... um, acknowledged as one of the official languages in Spain. So yes, that national identity is incredibly important when we come to shaping, uh, you know, identity. And But the language, the, the way it's connected to the national identity is, is the one of the, let's say, the gateways, the gate, uh, you know, gateposts po- to, to, to control that national identity. I think you bring up a fantastic example mm-hmm. about Spain, right? And that's right. so interesting because of the, the, the how 
diverse um, the country is in terms yes. of languages. And when we look at that sort of diversity, right, um, let's say we, let, we take a look at countries like India, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. who I think it is um, similar to the example Absolutely. that you just gave, perhaps even yes. more prominent. You know, you have right. um, Tamil Nadu that speaks Tamil, yes. then you have Kerala that speaks yes. Malayalam, and yes. then you have the North region uh, that, yeah. that speaks, you know, Hindi and, and Punjabi. Right. And even when you look at a country, let's say Malaysia, Right, mm. I think that is is similar in that sense because um we have you know um, Tamil language, Mandarin languages. We also have communities here who speak Telugu and, mm-hmm. and Malayalam, for example, mm-hmm. um, Punjabi. You know mm-hmm. all all these different languages, and then of course mm-hmm. you have Basa Malaysia, and then you also speak English. Mm-hmm. How do we approach the question of national identity in a country with such linguistic diversity? I think. The very first thing where national identity is concerned and linguistic linguistic diversity is concerned, I think we need to recognize the linguistic diversity. And this is what India has done. This is what Malaysia has done to a huge extent as well. There, there is a recognition of the linguistic diversity while of, uh, adopting an official language policy where you have a national language at the same time, but also policies that protect the rights of linguistic minorities. So you have that access to education. In Malaysia, there is that bilingual education um, at the expense unfortunately of of uh, a lot of our orang asa languages at the, at the, a lot of heritage languages and 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 uh, this is being corrected slowly it's being rectified but in a country like india there is a lot of emphasis on heritage languages and languages where uh, you know um, they are they've got a very strong regional uh, identity and that regional identity feeds into the national identity. So yes, the recognition of linguistic diversity, having official policies that preserve the linguistic identity, while at the same time privileging one particular language, one particular way of looking at at, at, at documentation and things like that um, through national identity. I think that's very interesting. The mm-hmm. like how you phrase that privileging mm-hmm. um one uh, yeah. a particular language while yeah. also protecting all the other right. languages, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. how do you take tackle this this sort of um mm-hmm. where people often um because when you look at even like a country like India and even mm-hmm. Malaysia, um mm-hmm. the approach um or the lack of let's say um very blatant or explicit unification in the sense that yeah. all, you know yeah. all other languages are you know you you toss it aside and there's only yeah. one language yeah. um malaysia india clearly we didn't take these approaches yeah. um and from that there are also some might argue that problems have come because of that um there are you know, people have battles of, mm. of language where mm. they say, no, this is my language, that is your mm. language, you cannot mm. encroach on our languages. Mm. Um, you know, in Malaysia, um, the, the language debate um, takes into the form of, let's say, vernacular schools, a lot of different aspects of political clash of ideas or mm. conflict comes into play. I am absolutely of the school of thought that there is unity in diversity. Mm. I think we need to develop narratives within our national identity itself that emphasize this unity in diversity because we are a multicultural uh, country. There, you know, we've got so many different cultures and, and that's the key thing here. Um, you know, we've got so many cultural groups, so many linguistic groups. We should be emphasizing the diversity and yet that diversity feeds into the unity so these right. national identity narratives should take that kind of storyline and they shouldn't be focusing on exclusionary 
or divisive narratives. And yes, I admit we have a lot of divisive narratives, a lot of exclusionary mm. narratives. But, you know, but I think the way forward, if you want social cohesion, social integration, um, is there's the, the, the question of respect, tolerance amongst linguistic groups, amongst cultural groups, and that other issue of intercultural dialogue, intercultural cooperation. There's this entire school of, of study that focuses on intercultural communication. I think that should be really, really important in, in developing national identity narratives. Another thing that I would focus on is is the political representation. Mm. I mean, that political representation must be fair to all linguistic and cultural groups in the country itself. To some extent, Malaysia has been successful in doing that. But, uh, you know, there must be proportional representation systems that allow minority groups a voice in the process. Absolutely. I think that's Mm. really wonderfully put. Now, what, you know, I want to go back to a little bit of of an individual um, mm-hmm. sort of construct, right? When it comes sure. to to your own personal identity, mm. uh, I'm wondering how does language serve as a means for self expression? Okay, let's take Gen Z. All right, <laughs> Gen, Z. Gen Z is the prime example of self expression. You know, Gen Z is is I mean, but then it's then it's not unique to Gen Z alone. I mean, right. we've been doing it from for years. I mean, Gen X had their own language, you know, and and, and old slang. And in fact, in Malaysia, uh, at least in the urban areas, Gen X. I don't know if you are aware of it, but Gen X had their own language that we didn't right. want parents to know, and we added an F <laughs> at the end of every word. You know, it was a very Malaysian Absolutely. thing that Gen X yeah. and other countries didn't do it, but we did it, and. So so, you know, um, but yeah, self-expression, I think that's the key thing. So where your social identity is concerned, it is an individual identity, but it's also connected to your social group, your social community, your peers, people who think like-mindedly like you, people who study with you, people who are part of that entire popular culture that you are part of, you know. Right. And Gen Z is very much part of this whole technological popular culture. You've got memes, you've got slang, you've got, you know, this fast-paced world that they live in social media you know uh you know everything is on demand everything is instant gratification so gen z's slang gen z's language very much reflects this and in fact one term that they use you know uh is the fear of missing out right formal, right mm-hmm. um i think that completely um encapsulates self-expression you tend to speak in a particular way, uh, you know, when it comes to personalized uh, expression, personal uh, identification with knowledge, uh, sorry, and and language, and uh, shaping one's own identity because there's the fear of missing out from your peers, from your friends, and things like that, whom you can fit in and you can move along with. In right. fact, there's a term that Gen Z uses, okay, boomer, right? I <laughs> mean, they use it for anybody else, not necessarily, oh, everyone's a boomer. I don't even think they realize who's a boomer and who's not. But the point is, when they say, okay, boomer, it clearly demarcates a distinct dis- uh, identity between them and other cultural groups, other social groups. Right. I'm yeah. also wondering um, if languages allow Mm -hmm. us to express our emotions in certain kind of ways. So for example, when we watch Tamil movies that are set in the rural areas, um, when there are funerals, um, the setting is, let's say there's a lot of um, very vocal expressions of grief, very loud expressions of grief. Um, You will have, um, let's say, grandmothers um, wailing. And then if you look at, let's say, English movies, for example, Mm. there are funerals a lot more quiet, a lot more somber um, Mm. and things like that. And even when we look at, let's say, anime, um, Mm. the way the Japanese animated characters express themselves is a lot more expressive 
loud. So much so that when they have a dubbed version of the same show in English, you often feel like the those that are, let's say, doing the English voices in the dub show cannot encapsulate the the emotion that is being um sort of um, portrayed or channeled. Right? Um, what what do you think accounts for this? I think I think. People need to think of language is more than just words. Right. Language is communication. Language can be verbal communication, written communication, but it can also be communication through gestures, through through you know vocabulary, word choice, and there's figurative language, emotional language, hmm. story, you know, narrative storytelling that you come up with. So, all this are part of that particular cultural group, you right. know, and so the because that cultural group has certain norms, certain ways of self-expression, the language will necessarily mirror that. And then the self-expression itself will shape their language. And then the language also then in turn reinforces Mm. that self-expression. So, I mean, to give you something, you yourself gave the example of grief in, 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 and it's not just in, I think, Tamilian societies, but it's also in a lot of uh, Indian societies. You right. do see Absolutely. that. Whereas um, this goes back to the whole idea of how you react to grief. It's a, it's a cultural norm. It's a societal mm. norm. Um, in, in, in certain um, uh, groups, um, you give voice to your grief. You let it out. Whereas others feel that, you know, um, we grief is something very personal. We hold it in. So the language that explains expresses that the way we express that through a language whether it's vocabulary wailing i would consider it as uh, a choice of vocabulary right. right yeah so you know that would that necessarily reflect the norms of that culture itself but if you take certain words yeah obviously i mean um look at the malaysian word amok or manja Mm. There are very few equivalents in other languages that so much so that they had to conscript these words into that language. Um, if you're talking about Japanese films, uh, you know, the whole concept of in anime of sundere and yandere. Right. Right. Um, in, in you know, you, the, the closest you can get to sundere in, in, uh, is, is brooding <laughs> character <laughs> right. in English. It doesn't quite get that entire, you know, character of that 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 that, that actor. I mean, not the actor, but that particular character, character. Who, who's not just brooding, but, you know, he's got a soft side to him, you know, so on and right. so forth. And it's not just him. It can be female characters who are sundere as well. Right. Yeah, very, very less expressive than yandere. So these are cultural norms which go into the mainstream at some points but some don't go into the mainstream so when they don't go into the mainstream obviously then you see this divide between cultures so speaking of right um, what role does language play in defining and and preserving ethnic identity how important is language when we look at this word ethnicity mm-hmm. I think it's incredibly important. I think mm. um, if you look at people who who are of different, especially in a multicultural country like Malaysia, right. you've got so many different ethnic groups, right? So language is important here because it's a powerful tool for maintaining a connection to the ethnic identity. So right. very often you have people who speak more than one language. They speak their ethnic language, but they also speak the national language or the, the language of commerce, perhaps, you know, the lingua right. franca of the world, you know. And uh, and uh, while they can um, have a sense of belonging to the two worlds that they're part of. So they belong to their cultural heritage, but at the same time, they also belong to the, the world that they're navigating through. The world, you know, of of, of uh, employment, the world of social interaction, so on and so forth. So I think that's very important. Um, language is very closely connected to ethnic identities, ethnic communities. Um, 
you know, it's it's very complex. It's also connected to cultural identities, and and we've talked about it. The Gaelic Scottish, it's very much an ethnic identity there. Uh, you know, they they preserve their songs, their poetry, their stories, their folk tales through their language. So there is not just speaking the language, but your entire knowledge sharing, preservation of knowledge. Our Orang Asal as well do that. There's no writing system there but they preserve it through the preservation of the knowledge, the, the knowledge of the jungles, the knowledge of so many different you know, um, resources that they can use. All these come through that identity management. Right. Do you think that people who speak um, various languages, mm-hmm. um, or multilingual people, uh, often have more complex relationships with their ethnicity? So for example, let's say just a personal example like myself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm ethnic. Indian. Um, if you want to go even more specific, I'm like ethnic Tamil. Right. Um, but my first language I could I speak is English, but I can understand Tamil fluently, but I don't necessarily um, speak Tamil that well, uh, yeah. but I can understand it. I can yeah. write um, Bahasa yeah. Malaysia very well. I cannot write Tamil at all. Um, right. But when it comes to, let's say, um, uh, consuming films, mm. I consume more Tamil films than uh, BM films. But you know my BM is better than my Tamil. Um, <laughs> so do you, do you is there a, a a sort of um, do you find that people uh in who speak different languages often or, or tend to have a little bit of a complex relationships oh, yeah. with their ethnicity? Oh, definitely. I mean, the the relationships are complex anyway, right? In right. any kind of mm-hmm. uh, social group. Um, but people with who are multilingual or bilingual, you know, like a lot of people in Malaysia, there's a lot of negotiation going on in terms of identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and and it's all very context dependent, very context dependent. So in different contexts, you adapt your language used to align with the expectations and norms of the the community you're interacting with. Therefore, right. when you are with your Tamil-speaking community, you will make an attempt because you understand it. You may mm. not speak it, but you certainly understand it. And you will be giving these verbal cues that say you understand what they're saying. Right. You consume the cultural expression of that language. You consume the movies, the songs, the literature, because it is also part of your own ethnic background. Mm. But at the same time, you are looking, that is, it, it reinforces yourself of belonging. It strengthens your ident- uh, ethnic identity. It doesn't mean that you're, you know, just because you don't speak Tamil very well, you don't write it at all, that you're not part of that ethnic identity. You're strengthening it in through different ways, through the cultural expression of it, by consuming uh, films, by consuming the music. Right. right? Um, however, at the same time, you are also strengthening your negotiations with other contexts with your other social groups. You know, um, my own first language was English. My father only ever spoke to me in English. Mm-hmm. However, my mother and my grandmother were insistent, adamant that I I understood Punjabi. Mm. And so they only ever spoke to me in Punjabi. So I grew up well-versed in both languages. And at the same time where I was living, I was living in a very Malay area where I learned the, right. the, you know, that language at the same time. So I negotiated these identities at the same time. I was speaking in English with certain groups, Malay with other groups, and Punjabi with other groups. So it's it's the whole idea of context. How do you navigate that context? You know your context. You may It may be a, an, a complex relationship, but you already know your context. Right. All right. Let's go for a very quick break. On the show with me today is Associate Professor Dr. Surinder Palkor. She's the Dean at the Faculty of Languages and Linguistics at University of Malaya. We continue our discussion after these messages. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. 
welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashan Johan, and on the show with me today is Associate Professor Dr. Surinder Palkor. She's a Dean at the Faculty of Languages and Linguistics at University Malaya. So, Dr. Surin, um, I also want to talk to you about how language, um, sometimes there's this perception of of social um, um, identity or class distinctions, especially. What would you say is the relationship of language um, and class distinctions, or at least how people perceive these class distinctions? Oh, very much so. I mean, um, it is seen uh, that, you know, some working classes and uh, and uh, um, higher class, uh, you know, societal classes have language distinctions. You. And very often, slang and, and informal language plays a role in this. Um, you will see that, for example, in the UK, um, because they pay, it's a very classist society, the working class has a different accent, has a different right. pronunciation. So they identify people from the working class just by their accent and uh, they, they, the diction itself. The vocabulary right. used. Um, so you you would tend to do that. Class distinction is very important, but we do it ourselves. But sometimes people move from one uh you know vernacular to another vernacular let's let's put it this way that the, the way you speak register the register to another register so if i were in the market i'm not going to be speaking the way i'm speaking to you right i would automatically lower my register i would automatically speak what we call a basilect with the uh the the person in the market Right. So right. my vocabulary, my accent will change. I would not be speaking in a more standard English. I would be definitely bringing in a more, uh, you know, uh, uh, an English that is uh, very accented, Malaysian accent or Chinese accent. I would definitely bring that in. Right. Right. But it's also very complex because it, it affects your employment opportunities. It affects your economic opportunities. So those who speak, you know, in certain accents, certain pronunciations, it does affect that. Their employment prospects. So um, those who speak better, they have better access to higher paying jobs, career advancements. I mean, that is the way it is. I mean, I we could call it linguistic discrimination. Absolutely, right? Absolutely, I mean, yeah. Because I, I, I do want to talk about that a little bit more, that the kind mm -hmm. of impact, um, you know, language or dialect variations have on perceptions of mm -hmm. um, individual social status, right? Mm -hmm. Because like, for example, um, you know, I hear this from, let's say, um, many um, Indian men in Malaysia, mm -hmm. right? Um, like mm -hmm. even myself, I've gone through a couple, some experiences where, you know, when people see, oh, it's this dark-skinned Indian guy, and then there are certain people the way people um, sort of react to you is in certain ways. Um, there is certain um, implicit discrimination and that's going on and things like that. Sometimes mm -hmm. um, people look at your profile picture and they might not want to rent you a, a, a room or, or a sure. house and things like that. But then I've also been in situations where there is that until the moment you start speaking mm -hmm. and then they're like, oh, this is the English speaking um, yeah. Indian guy. So I'm gonna. Yeah. Then there's that automatic suddenly, you know, treating a person better and, yeah. and things like that, which is of course not good. Linguistic yeah. discrimination, like you said. Yeah. How, how do you see these things? This, these perceptions of one's individual social status that you speak a certain language or you know, with a certain accent, and suddenly people see you as you know better than. I've been through that myself. I mean, mm. you know, I used to travel a lot to the UK, and I and I used to watch uh, people, you know, from the same aeroplane embarking from the same plane, being held up at immigration, and I got through immigration in no point and no no time at all because of the mm. way I spoke, you right. know. Um, yeah, um, this is a little bit 
complex. This is a little bit difficult because linguistic discrimination does exist. It's not just the lower classes. It is also looking at ethnic groups. It right. is also looking at dialects. Uh, you know, um, automatically, say for someone uh, who, who speaks in a Klantanese dialect in Malaysia, uh, there is a certain way of perceiving them. And it's often politically mirrored in that sense. So, you know, you would probably would want to, those in the urban areas, uh, they would tend to associate that with them, you know, being right. backward or whatever, you know. Um, I was on uh, Reddit some recently, just recently, and there was an, uh, an, uh, um, an African, American African asking for advice about moving to Malaysia. And the general com- uh, consensus was, you speak English, you will be fine. Right. Um, and where else, you know, someone from Africa who speaks with a very distinct African accent mm-hmm. will not be fine because then there will be that demarcation because there is that um, the prejudices that we already hold, the societal, cultural prejudices that we already hold against people. And this goes deep into discrimination. This goes deep into hegemony and ideologies of people. It's hard to move, hard to hard to shift. But I can only hope that, uh, you know, people people learn people mm-hmm. you know it's it's complex it's hard i i don't want to come out and say that you know uh that 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 it will change as long as you have people as long as you have different cultural groups and as long as you have people who have very very strong feelings about other cultural groups and the delegitimizing of other cultural groups you will consistently have this so speaking of cultural groups, I'm also very curious, how do migrant um, and yeah. or refugee um, individuals and communities negotiate language changes? How does it shape their identity? Migrants and refugees are the people who make the effort to learn the language of the host country. Mm. Because language proficiency, is it's, it's, it's really important. It's very important right. for integration, employment. And to access different kinds of, of, of you know, uh, facilities, resources and services. Right. Um, so very often they don't have access to formal language education. Right. Mm. So they don't have access to language classes or, you know, or even access to language learning apps like a lot of people do, like Duolingo and things like that. But the immersion in the environment, interactions with local communities, it accelerates their language learning. This is why you find Bangladeshi waiters speaking Malay fluently. Absolutely. You see? Right. And I would say a lot of the Myanmar refugees speak Malay fluently. They speak mm-hmm. English to some extent as well. So they do seek out uh, partners, conversation groups where they will learn the language. It's the immersion that works. And um, and they also learn from their peers who are already uh, well-versed in the language. What, at the same time, they maintain their na- native language. They always maintain their native language because that's their connection to home. On the flip side, what about gender identity? How does language intersect with gender? okay i mean you know gender identities are very very uh complex already Mm -hmm. you've got you know in you're living in a world where gender itself is a very complex uh, concept right Mm -hmm. uh there are groups of people who say gender is just a biological sex uh whereas others say no gender is a whole host of other things you've got gender roles you've got gender you know uh conditioning all kinds of things but um i want to get back to language here um Many languages are already gendered at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, Malay is not a gendered language. It's more neutral. English also, to some extent, is a neutral language. But uh, English uh, does have um, certain privileging of certain words that are associated with certain genders, you see. Uh, whereas other languages, like, say, Punjabi or Spanish, are already gendered. I'm not sure about Tamil. I'm assuming it is as well. It's mm-hmm. already gendered. Say, for example, a table is in a masculine pronoun, whereas a chair is a feminine pronoun. 
Right. So you already have the, the gender embedded into the language. Then on the other hand, in, in languages like English, I mean, also in Punjabi or whatever, you've got your stereotypes, which are connected to gender. So you've got your grammatical structures and your pronouns, which are reinforcing uh, gender structures. So, you know, in uh, Spanish, you've got ella for a uh, woman, el for a man, uh, whereas mm -hmm. Malay will just say dear. It's just right. dear. Everyone's a dear, right? Um, however, in English, you know, you, he, uh, he, him is always masculine. Her is, is feminine. But they also have other vocabularies, not just pronouns, but they have identity labels uh, like nurse. A nurse is almost always already gendered. There is a default gender to nurse because you see a nurse as feminine because a female is seen to be connected, associated with the roles of caring, mothering. So a nurse is already a female. Uh, then if you have a male who's in that profession, you end up calling him a male nurse. You've got to mark that term because your term is only used for females. Right. So it is there. You've got these, and, and of course, other things like title preferences, name preferences, you know. Um, yeah, sexist language. Right. A lot of things. Dr. Serena, I'm wondering, right, um, you know, when we when we talk about gendered languages and, and some mm -hmm. languages that are not very um, um, entrenched in, in gender, I'm wondering, um, uh, you know, how it can impact the people primarily using the languages or communicating in the language. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm guessing that in a very globalized society where people mm. are exposed to different languages and different ways of thinking and, and, and so on and so forth, uh, perhaps it's a little bit different. But I, I'm trying to picture, let's say, a situation, right? Um, let's say two villagers um, completely isolated from larger society, mm. one village where they only speak English. And like you said, mm. English... Uh, is has gender embedded in the language he she um, already has a gender uh, mark uh, demarcation there and then on the flip side let's say in another village isolated from society people only speak Basa Malaysia so mm. there's no dear when it says dear sire um, mm. kita, there's no um, he she kind of gen, uh, gender um, sort of markings there how would the perceptions of these two sort of isolated communities, how would the people think? Would they think differently about gender? I, I think it goes back to the gender itself. I think, you know, remember I said language shapes the way you speak. Right. Uh, but the way you speak also is shaped by the way you think. Right. Right. So um, it is a, a, a dialectical relationship. It's not a single one-way relationship. So, mm. you know, your beliefs and thoughts of gender will shape the language you use but the language you use will also shape the uh, the, the the your gender perceptions for, for english mm. uh you know i still hear terms like chair uh, chairman 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 when it's very obvious that the person who's chairing is a woman right. right so it all depends on their beliefs on gender in the first place so what kind of privileging is being given to what kinds of genders in that particular society it'll be reflected in your gen in your language and your language will reinforce those beliefs so it doesn't necessarily mean that you know if this is um uh malay and they only you know the the language itself is not gendered there are other ways of expressing gender within language so the the intersection between culture and society is very important because the language itself is influenced by culture uh, cultural and societal norms and these will shape the gender identity norms that you already have right all right i also want to spend some time talking a little bit about 
power dynamics, right? Mm. What is the relationship between language and power dynamics? How do dominant and marginalized languages influence power structures? Because there is that sort of hierarchy. Unfortunately, there is that hierarchy of Mm. language, right? Where Mm. currently English is right at the top. Language is a tool of power. Mm. Language is a tool of power. It is used to exert power and control over groups, over individuals. So if you have a dominant language, the people who control the dominant language, they will hold influence over communication, access Mm. to information, and also decision-making processes. All right. At a simple level, you have in Malaysia, we've got our national language, which is Bahasa Malaysia, Bahasa Melayu, but you've also got English. And English is what, I mean, it's called the lingua franca and, you know, in the world, although right. Mandarin is coming up there as well, and so is Spanish. Now, um, as a lingua franca, English holds a lot of power. The hegemony that there is there in English, it's it's really, really strong. Right. So parents themselves will say, oh, no, I need my child to learn English. I need my child to learn Mandarin, you know? Mm. So the access to that language, the influence over the communication, even minority groups will want that particular access, that particular information. So Language is basically just the tool of power. Um, if I were to cha- uh, look at, say, China, let's look at China. China, Chinese government uh, encourages Putonghua, right? The ma- right. standard Mandarin. But China is a country of diversity. There are so many different dialects, so many different ways of speaking Mandarin. And yet, when you watch a lot of Chinese uh, movies and films, everyone there speaks uh, standard Mandarin because that is the control. That is the dominant right. group is exerting over it. So if someone, this may be a great actor, and I don't know, many people know this, um, in, in, in many Chinese uh, serials and dramas and things like that, the actor's voices are dubbed. Why? Mm. Because the actor is speaking in a regional dialect. In you know, And so what they want is a standard. Uh, right. That's uh, so interesting. So they dub. So there's this entire group of voice actors out there who move from actor to actor dubbing for the actors. So this is one way. It is exerts power and control over individuals. It exerts power um, into, into groups. And it also assigns value to different languages. Certain languages have less value. Other languages have higher uh, perceived value. So dominant languages always are perceived with being prestigious, higher social, social, social status. So the policies will reflect that power dynamics. Right. So this has been an incredibly fascinating conversation, Dr. Serene. Before we wrap it up, closing thoughts from you, what would you say is the importance of language in shaping one's identity? Let me just leave you with a quote um, from Noam Chomsky. He's a linguist, right? Mm -hmm. And he's also an activist. Well, He says, language is not just words. It's a culture. It's a tradition. It is a unification of a community. It's an entire... I'm paraphrasing, by the way, an entire history that creates what a community is. So Chomsky says that, you know, and and um, centuries ago, uh, Charlemagne said that to have another language is to possess a second soul. It's as simple as that. Language shapes the way we think, the way we fit into our communities, the way we interact with our communities. Language also shapes the way we disrupt the communities in which we are. Um, and uh, it's basically, it's the blood and soul of our thoughts and how our thoughts grow. Well, on that wonderful note, thank you so much for joining me today. You're most welcome. 
That was Associate Professor Dr. Surinder Palkor. She's the Dean at the Faculty of Languages and Linguistics at University of Malaya. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my. You can also get us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. You just have to look up Today I Learned Podcasts. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.